If you could save one file on Arweave with R Drive forever, what would it be? And what would this file say about you and your history or your family or something like that? Absolutely. So actually, I did that for my late grandparents. So if there's just one piece of information I could save, I would. I had one about a five second video clip of my late grandma calling my nickname. In Chinese, and I've actually uploaded on onto the Perma Web. You're tuned to the Rcast, where we talk about the blockchain on the Rcast, and how your data remains it's the Rcast. Where R drive is the topic, censorship resistant permanence. Yeah, we got it. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 38 of the Rcast. It's your friend Andrew with a really interesting interview with Hannah Shen, who I met at Permapalooza in Austin. She is the head of global growth at Mask, and we talk about Mask's vision of connecting Web 2 and Web 3, and we talk about the role of the company's unique universal identity graph, NextID, which empowers social interactions across chains and platforms. So check it out. It's a cool interview. Hannah's doing a lot of interesting things, and she talks about the social potential of Web 3 and how that ties into her work. So let's dive into it. Oh, before we start. Turbo is live. You can now pay for permanence with a credit card. So there are a lot of tutorials and videos on our YouTube channel explaining how it works or just go to rdrive.io slash turbo. Here's my interview with Hannah. Hello, friends. I'm here with Hannah Shen and we met at the Permapalooza panel at Consensus in Austin. She is the head of global growth for the Mass Network. But she does a lot of things, and it's a great opportunity to be able to speak with her on the ArtCast. So, Hannah, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Andrew, for uh, having me. And it was such a blast having you, meeting you at Permapalooza. And yeah, thank you for having me on this great platform. You were on the panel that was interrupted by a tornado of wind. And <laughs> oh, yeah, that was <laughs> brutal. Like that, I've never seen that before. Yeah. How would you describe your work as head of global growth for the Mass Network? And what were the steps in your unique career and journey that got you to this place? So I've been the head of global growth at Mass Network for over a year now. I joined the team in, in April of 2022. So within Mask, even I wear like two main hats. So global growth lead for Mask as a whole. I lead our like global education and partnerships efforts through a lot of the events that we run in, in North America and in DEFCON for focusing on developer communities and also just overall user education on Web3 Social as a concept. At East Denver, we ran the Web3 Social House. At DEFCON last year in Bogota, we also ran events with other gaming and social protocols. More importantly, at Mask, since I joined, we started to develop our identity infrastructure, a decentralized identity infrastructure protocol called NextID, of which I'm a co-founder of to lead the product to protocols growth and iteration from zero to one. Yeah, and I'm happy to share more about how NextID works and why we see a decentralized identity as a critical piece within both the Mask's own like product stack for us to be uh, a, a full stack Web3 social project from infrastructure to middleware to application and for the broader ecosystem to have the identity infrastructure ready to onboard the next uh, million user into Web3. And the path that led me to where I am today, I think there are two layers. So first of all, professionally, I've been like an early startup builder since day one, uh, always as a, a 
business journalist uh, previously into social-focused Web2 startups in the Bay Area and focused on the product and business development growth from zero to one. Um, both startups were, the first one was actually a TikTok competitor at the time. It was a consumer app that pivoted more towards a B2B video e-commerce uh, product. And the company has scaled from like a, under 50 people when I joined as the CEO's first business journalist hire to over 200 people when I left the company. And now it's scaled even further, much bigger, and led, it was led uh, by SoftBank for their Series B. And when a company scaled, I joined an Andreessen Horowitz-backed uh, startup on vir- focusing on virtual events. So how do we make social, social interactions more fun, even when we're on Zoom? And then that the product really took off during the pandemic when people are cooped up at home and having the Zoom fatigue. So I'm, I'm like always very interested in the kind of the social angle of uh, using like kind of a new technological innovation. And that kind of na- that naturally led me to look more into how creators are using different tools today to engage with their communities online and with the investors that we had in Dreesen at the time and people I work with, I st- like started to look more into uh, Web3 uh, re- uh, empowered uh, creator economy uh, and what will be like what, what does it mean to have Web3 social, right? Like when we talk about social products, you're either social or not. And then it doesn't have to be Web2 or Web3. But then with Web3 social today, there's a fundamental change in terms of the tech stack, in terms of how, the, how our data is being stored and used and who has a lot more agency, users vis-a-vis platform. So these are all, I think, very interesting new new thesis and new uh, product and, and infrastructure layer innovations in the domain area that I've, I've always been very interested in. So that as I start to see more of opportunity going into like Web3 adoption, that's when I stumbled upon Mask as a, as a project. And just like on a higher level, philosophically, I, I my bachelor degree is in government and political science at Harvard. And then seeing the kind of how technology enabled uh, different stages of uh, social changes and are able to facilitate a lot of the cross-cultural discourse and like mass mobilization, that's like a bigger and goal for me to see how the native like financial system, then the kind of all these on-chain immutable records, all these blockchain enabled te- technological features, how that would interact with unlock more potential or like more changes that goes beyond just within the tech realm. And we're seeing this in markets where the centralized government and banks cannot be trusted, like where people are defaulting more to a permissionless and decentralized financial system to secure their assets. Like there could be a lot more use cases of this as the world evolves. And so today we see like the crypto world and the real world operate sometimes in parallel. But what I'm interested in is to seeing how these two worlds really merge, both in the bull case where people really see the benefits of having their information on a decentralized web, they feel more empowered, and in more of a bear case, if things don't go really well in the real world, what are our alternatives as individuals? How can we? How can myself and my team empower more citizens around the world to be network citizens? You're on the forefront of bringing the world together. You do a lot of outreach. Tell me about your work with the MIT Bitcoin Expo and your work as a G20 youth delegate. Yeah, that's my, I think my hats outside of masks, but they're all connected in in one way or not. Overall, I I grew up in Shanghai and then I've lived in the US and studied abroad in Japan, Germany in my kind of formative years. I really see myself as a uh, connector uh, across different cultures, 
across different industries, uh, across different uh, nations, and and like kind of having these kind of cross disciplinary communication be the facilitator of that is something very uh, personally meaningful to me. So uh, I, I currently I'm the co-president of MIT Sloan Blockchain Club and uh, the uh, MIT Bitcoin Expo for the past year. The goal of uh, for me to lead this is, first of all, MIT Bitcoin Expo is actually the longest running uh, academic conference on the blockchain in North America. Our like, past presidents from the Dan Elizer to Jing, who is the co-founder of Optimism, and, and some of the core Bitcoin are all like the founding members of the, this club. It, has, it carries a lot of legacy, and this is where I think the very the kind of the first generation of the enthusiasts, the purest researchers into the Bitcoin, like in, into Bitcoin started their discourse. So I personally, I think it's an honor for me to be able to lead and be able to like welcome back a lot of the Bitcoin, both Bitcoin OG devs and going beyond just the Bitcoin ecosystem, things around like CK rollups and applications and also regulations, a big topic this year. Gary Gansler was at MIT teaching crypto finance before he went on to do other important things in, in his career. Yeah, being able to keep facilitating these academic discourse that are fundamental focused or academic that are very much anti-noise in a space, uh, I think it's very important. And that's a way for, for, I think, for us as ministry to be able to draw in more talents that are here for the long term. And with my also role, I'm asked for global growth. Like part of my like mission is to be able to have interest and awareness around identity, around privacy and social that will be meaningful to most of what I do at the MIT, like being able to connect with people across cultures, like with diverse group of people has been something very important to me growing up and having these like kind of cross-cultural backgrounds. Last year, I was selected as one of the four official delegates representing China to, to participate in the G20 summits like youth, like youth summit. I was actually the first one uh, with uh, work experience who was educated overseas and uh, focused on like uh, technology, diversity and inclusion. So I was the leader in the diversity inclusion track. And one big thing that I was pushing for, like so our final deliverable for the uh, Y20 summit is a um, a communique uh, across 20, uh, 20 states. And that that's something we, over the, over the course of six months, uh, we continuously discuss like what are the top priority agenda that we want to advocate as youth that we want to share with the, uh, the leaders of states in, in G20. Um, and then one thing that I am personally very passionate about is digital inclusion and be able to in, uh, increase the digital literacy and accessibility of the tools that we use today for more youth. That includes those that are disadvantaged, like needing accessibility features, because most of the a lot of the early tech products are actually not like WCAG AA compliant. Those are the, some of the, like things that. You as a builder, like if we're building a product today, if five people can use it, and that's great, right? You don't think about the kind of the inclusivity there, but I think as we scale, and especially like now that I'm working in the field of like in blockchain, where I think there's, there's still a pretty high entry barrier for your day-to-day users to come in, like how do we uh, facilitate inclusion and diversity within the, the digital realm is something I push for at, uh, as a, a Chinese delegate for y, uh, Y20, yeah. Your career is a lot about connecting people and yeah. bridging people. And I wanted to talk about some of the features that the Mask Network currently provides to users on social media platforms and how specifically you help bridge Web 2.0 
and Web3. With that context about who I am, I think it makes a lot of sense why I joined Mass Team, because I think the, really the mission aligns in terms of being able to bridge the chasm that we see today across different platforms. So at Mask, we have three products uh, with the goal of being able to bridge users' identity, information, and uh, kind of their content feed across Web2 and Web3. So the flagship product, when we first built, it's essentially, a, uh, it's called Mask Network. It's a browser extension that lives on top of Twitter that makes it very easy for users to create an identity they own that allows them to send encrypted tweets, send NFT giveaways, access for different types of uh, applications like the apps like on ramp off ramp we have like our drive as one of our application too on top of twitter so some people may call this like a vampire attack on twitter we like to think of it as really we create like a portal for people to get their first taste of what it's like to to interact with a web3 type of application with the minimum uh, effort um, like users don't even need to have a wallet address to use mask extension it's as easy as downloading the extension we create a decentralized uh, identity, which we call persona, that lives on the NextID protocol. So later on, if they want to connect their wallets, they can from Twitter to like Ethereum wallet address. But as, as the get-go, they just need to create like a persona that they own and then be able to just start using the application. And then we've been running that application for two, two years. And with NextID, essentially, we're, we take out the identity management protocol for the browser extension and make an open source protocol to empower more applications to be able to build uh, on top of a decentralized identity tech stack from day one. Dexid's thesis is very similar. We are we offer the authentication and identity graph service to connect uh, profiles on Web2 from GitHub to Discord, to Twitter, and Reddit, to different wallet addresses across different chains. So it's a chain agnostic, very neutral solution that allows builders to be able to onboard users from Web2 to Web3 more easily through our, our like authentication service and be able to also build a rich user profile very easily from day one that contains, for example, HANA's identity across different Web2 platforms and Web3 platforms. So you can build with that interesting search functions, recommendation functions on top of our universal profile database. So we have the infrastructure, we have a middleware layer, the browser extension, and a one an application that we're experimenting is called the Firefly app, recognizing that for social today, it has to be mobile first. So with the, ident- the cross, cross-platform identity that we have, we're like, experimenting it on a mobile platform where uh, today, if you use Firefly, it's an, a content aggregator across uh, Lens, Farcaster, and Twitter. And it's designed for, to allow users to be able to dis- uh, discover the, the latest posts their friends have made across different platforms, the latest NFT collections they've uh, made like, across different platforms right within one app. Uh, that's another, like on the application layer, uh, how we are experimenting the web. Web 2, Web 3 integration. How does Arweave's role tie in with mass mission? Does the idea of a content blockchain resonate with this or is that kind of separate? Absolutely. I think there's a very direct connection between Arweave's product suite, its mission, and what Mask is uh, trying to do. Fundamentally, we want users to, to really own who they are, own their identity uh, graph, their, and then their social graph, and their footprints across the cyberspace. And to do that, 
data storage is like kind of content storage, be able to uh, verify that you are who you are and have that piece of verification stored in a decentralized way, in an immutable way is highly critical. And uh, as any sort of creator, like we're all uh, pr- uh, content creators uh, today, be able to have our content, our legacy uh, secured and uh, like kind of uh, shared in a decentralized way that's against like censorship resistant is, is also mission critical. So I think that's where it, our Weave's mission, like Sam and our CEO Suji, like they really align on these like high level ethos of why we're doing what we're doing today. And more on the kind of feasible, like tangible level, how are we placed into masks uh, overall tech suite? So on uh, Next ID, well, we have uh, an uh, authentication service where a user's proof, um, sign a cryptographic proof of who they are. Um, like on Twitter, they, they will assign a signature to a test for that. And then they can also assign a signature to a test uh, that uh, they own a certain wallet using NextID's like decentralized identifier like called Avatar. And then these proofs are uh, backed up on our Weave. We're not a centralized server. These should be things that are uh, publicly verifiable that are stored in a decentralized manner. On a mask uh, browser extension side, we make it really easy for people to experience, to upload content to like our drive, to, to understand what it's like to have your data stored on the permaweb. And these things are not something that users need to have like to go through significant entry barrier to access. And we want to be the kind of front end portal for users to access the permaweb. Yeah, and so are we in the past and, and Mask, we've done a lot of collaborations also on the campaign side to educate users on like, what does it mean to, to have your entire experience being like self-owned, self-sovereign and decentralized. If you're having a central storage place for all this data, mm-hmm. then it's not decentralized. Like one example we always use is if you're like, if you have a Medium account or your Twitter uh, influence, or you can have as, as powerful as former uh, head of state and all that, everything you own today can be completely wiped out. It's just like in, like in a matter of seconds. It's a decision made by individuals. There are a lot of things that beyond like individuals control, like who gets censored and uh, uh, whatnot. So we definitely think the new age social media should have the element where people have alternatives. Like there, if a certain platform does not tolerate some types of remark, but doesn't welcome certain types of content, there's always an alternative for me to migrate my assets, my legacy. These are the capital that we hold today, our intellectual properties, right? Whether meme counts as intellectual property is a different discussion. I think it's a (laughs) different genre, but there should be the options. We're a huge advocate that Web3 offers people just like permissionless alternatives for for them to be a cyber citizen of dignity. Like that can live on different servers or different platforms on the Fediverse or on a decentralized like web. Yeah. And then you, overall, you see this kind of growing awareness. And then with like the tens of millions of people joining, hundreds of millions of people joining threats these days, this is like the public's like public's like demonstration, like a silent demonstration to show, show how dissatisfied they are with Twitter, with a centralized platform that can easily control our access to information. Right. So I think the Web3 social overall and our, this awareness of the necessity of having decentralized, like permanent kind of records that are beyond a single agency's control, that's a crypto native users. So I'm really excited to see overall the concept of like Fediverse being more adopted and then like overall, like people are looking for alternatives and think of data ownership and then asset ownership, not 
just as a value protection feature, not just as something nice to have, almost as a necessity as a, a universal basic, like cyber citizen rights that they should have, like access using a service like applications in the future. And then, like, I'm I'm really optimistic to see that growing awareness, especially among younger users who are like digital first. Yeah, like who essentially like just realize like these are their properties, and there's no, it's unfair for any like platforms to to be able to just take it away so, so easily without any penalties because the whole history of the world has been the shift of like centralized power and then revolution and yeah. then recentralization you said something that stood out to me you said you're more of a realist than an optimist but would you say you're more optimistic about technology or humanity or the coming together of the two to, to your point how the world is the dynamics we see as a pendulum shifting from centralization to decentralization and then re-centralization. And it is also like one end is a pendulum and the other side is like it's a spiral effect, right? Like we see like overall more and more individuals, like ownership become like baked into every single rounds of like revolution. Like people are trying to advocate for more ownership for themselves. And then like a dissolve certain kind of centralized power. That's actually the opening line of the Chinese classic, the tale of three kingdoms is like the, in terms of the grand scheme things, like when you're apart for too long, they like, you integrate and when you're integrated for too long, you disintegrate. In the world that we live today, like we're like, let's say in crypto, full like decentralization doesn't mean I, I don't think it just necessarily equates to anarchy or just like having no leader, right? It's about how you build agency, build more agency and ownership for individuals while being able to organize them into forces, into pla- different platforms, different servers on Mastodon or different communities on lands, however you want to form it. There still needs to be some gravitating effort. I don't think technology can save us um, alone. Technology has historically been proven to be used by centralized, really the privilege and centralized entity to better apps of, of the masses, or in many cases, as a state-to-state weapon of, of deterrence, right? We've seen technologies go rogue or go, go wrong way too many times historically. It has to, technology in itself uh, doesn't take a stance almost, or Satoshi Nakamoto took a stance in why Bitcoin white paper was there, right? But how it was used Later on, as we see today, I think I'm a realist in the sense that in the past like two years I've been building in the crypto space, not everyone talks like me or think like me. There are a lot more other incentives that's coming in uh, for people to, for like highly educated technologists to use this force for evil as well. So you can see things being swinged both ways. And then for, I think from my point of view or from mask, for, for us to advocate and build the world that we, we're truly passionate about, there has to be a lot more conscious governance in terms of how we're building technology, what kind of talents we draw to the space, what kind of incentive mechanism we're designing around our protocols to incentivize the right type of directions. What, and then how do we find users that are here not just to make short-term speculative gains, but actually see the value of the applications that we built today that are decentralized in nature that enables them to, uh, to unlock more values, uh, like entertainment value or financial value, uh, et cetera. 
So there has to be a very conscious uh, governance of a uh, powerful technology, I think, for things to work. The human piece, the governance piece plays a bigger role in terms of guiding crypto forward. Because you see the traditional, the old guard regulators trying to crash it down. And we've seen experimentations with DAO governance. Some of them work, some of them doesn't. But I think it's at a crossroad where there needs to be a better, more of a proactive effort in terms of guiding the technology forward. What a thoughtful response. I really like that. And the way power structures and technology and history all play together is fascinating. It's something that comes up a lot on this podcast. You talked about the moving and historical Sound of April video when you were a panelist at Permapalooza. The idea of how Web3 can promote social revolutions and how mask can be part of this. So for those that are not aware of Sound of April, it's essentially this... Uh, collage of different sound bites that from like phone calls to conversations that edited together during a two month uh, pandemic lockdown in Shanghai, where uh, because of the COVID-19 outbreak, the, the city essentially mandated like a uh, mandatory uh, lockdown where I, I was part of it um, for health uh, concerns. I understand where they're coming from, but it was a really um, strict. Uh, and then in, in, in that uh in that context, there are also emergencies happen when you can't leave your home, like access to medication, like people are not getting like food, like there was like they cut off, there's no Uber Eats during that time, there's ration government supplies, All right? So it was, I think, a very realistic, like representation of some of the, the struggles that people face when they don't have much agency in terms of their personal mobility, in terms of how they're getting uh, their daily nutrition and medication and all the like necessary like services. And then when the, the, this clip went out, it was something that was, I, I think, truly touching. It, it, that was a, a moment of solidarity, I think, almost for people who were locked down. It was a moment of also sadness for those that were suffering from these lockdown. Uh, but at the same time, it definitely contains I think, certain elements of the messaging that we want the government to hear for us to be treated more properly, there, like for, for the policy to be executed more properly in, in the process. But unfortunately, I think there was a lot of also censorship or yeah, like also like it could be uh, interpreted in different ways and to make sure that we permanently remember what happened and to, to not forget um, the kind of impact of a pandemic uh, that can do uh, to a city that was so lively and, and so populous. Um, people like there's an effort to uh, bring this a video clip, that, this con a documentary type of thing, uh, uh, uploaded to our weave. Yeah. And then that was the first time I think even both my parents were also like locked up in Shanghai. Like that's something they would understand, like uh, using the Perma web as the Internet archive, as a uh, as archive of memories, uh, something for um, our friends, for our next generation to remember. And that's just like one very small example of how uh, I see like Web3 and uh, the real world uh, interact. And it won't be like a only use case. We're seeing a lot of uh, also uncertain like turmoils uh, across the world. Like for a lot of the memories uh, that people live through today, uh, there's certainly value in preserving it uh, in a decentralized and a permanent um, tech stack uh, for future generations, for us, for our generation to also remember uh, now that it's it's been like a year, I think some people stop 
feeling the pain. Um, but I think just having those records there, uh, like for, for myself, is a constant reminder of, of why I'm advocating for the, more of these like mobility, uh, both digitally, like, they, like digitally uh, through Web3 technologies. Archiving history is important and there's always a perspective on the narrative how it's archived, right? Exactly. <laughs> and the, the, the good thing of a content blockchain where like the, all the permissionless uh, web is it is not subjective, right? It is timestamped. You see the timestamp, like how the, the, every single like block that process through everything is very objective in terms of how it's being stored and it's permissionless for everyone to access. Uh, it's not, it's like very much resistant to manipulation of the content. And historically, I think this is a huge like revolution, uh, like a huge disruption to how history has been written, driven by different narratives in the past. Right? Like where do you find a lot of valuable like firsthand information in the future could hugely benefit from a uh, decentralized archive. Uh, built on permaweb. It's unprecedented, right? It's never happened. And, and like AI has been taking the eyeballs of everyone these days, right? And then with AI, ChatGPT, deepfakes, like the authenticity and validity of content becomes an ever like an ever like important like issue issue to historians for us, like for people to understand what is truly truth or not. And that's where I think blockchain or like cryptography comes into play to really verify what is right? What was the source of truth at something's like Genesis? The idea of data provenance, right? Like where did it originate from? Now it becomes more important than ever to show the proofs. Don't trust, verify, as we always say, to verify that, okay, this is the person that uploaded this. This is the piece of content, the metadata, the timestamp, and all of these are like immutable. So it's become, I think it will become like even bigger necessity in the future as we are going to an age with endless uh, like a, a sea of potentially like noise and garbage information or like fake uh, like ai generated content and credentials out there right yeah those so i think that's why outside of applications we're focusing a lot of our bandwidth now in terms of decentralized identity levels in the age of ai in the age of these like machine generated content and identities and bots it becomes uh, like ever like more mission critical for us to be able to attest users' identity to verify them through using immutable technologies like cryptography or on-chain on-chain data and records. So that's why this beyond just building a middleware and application and mask, we've spent a lot of bandwidth in terms of developing XID, uh, which is using decentralized identity to verify users' uh, profiles across different platforms and allow users to be able to verify and own their identity graph, social graph, and a lot more of these, these footprints across, across the cyberspace. Yeah. So that's interesting because we talk about Next ID and DIAS. I was wondering, how can that technology be useful for DAP builders? Next ID as a decentralized identity protocol is designed for DAP builders, we're developer-facing protocol. And today, there are two main modules for NextID that allows decentralized like application builders to be able to uh, both like write into the NextID DID protocol uh, using a decentralized identifier provided by like like generated on the NextID protocol uh, for the users themselves to attest their identities across. Web2. So I can log in with my Twitter account, with my uh, Discord or uh, GitHub, and uh, through the DID based authentication 
service that we have, then uh, we can generate like a XID avatar for them. And they can then connect to different wallet addresses across different chains. Like onboarding users, like developers can use us to write identity data onto the XID protocol that are, it's open source, it's publicly available, publicly verifiable. And then once the users get onboarded, our second piece is our second pillar is identity universal profile database, which uh, allows uh, developers to read into our uh, graph database of users' identities. So today, if I look up my ENS, NextID protocol database would uh, provide information about how my ENS then like as a web of information connects to my Farcaster, my Lens handle, my Twitter account, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So they can read into this like user profile database and be able to then derive different uh, functionalities on top of it. So we've heard a lot of, for example, DAOs or NFT projects wanting to understand how their users on Web2, what are their on-chain behaviors and identities. Like our database are able to map that out. And all, Or if I want to invite or find uh, recommendations uh, of uh, what my friends are doing, or like who to, to invite to this app, we can also use the profile database to as a way to a gen- a kind of a, a solve for the cold start problem, like generate a more of a viral effect for developers uh, when they first uh, are building, like kind of building out their user base. So it's data they didn't really have access to before easily. There's like segmentation yeah. we see today across different chains, there are different ident- identities, different wallet addresses. And then there's the off-chain data piece that we don't see many projects in the space are building out because NextID started out as uh, like masks our own kind of identity management protocol that connects Twitter identities to like Web3 like wallets. So today we have about 14,000 native like decentralized and uh, like NextID avatars on the protocol that contains users information. Like these are all publicly verifiable user attested for this information. So it's not like anything private out in the public who they are on Twitter and how that connects to their Web3 uh, like identities like ENS, etc. And uh, overall, we've also aggregated other sources of highly verifiable like kind of connections across identities in the database. So we have about 140,000 kind of different uh, strings of queries, like uh, connections that you can query uh, in the database. And so overall, like that's at a magnitude that I haven't seen much in the space that provides this kind of on-chain, off-chain and cross-chain like uh, identity related informatics information. Yeah. A lot of exciting work you're doing like in all your different capacities. And it's been really cool getting to hear about all this technology and your perspective. And I wanted to end with one last question that I like to ask our RCAST guests. If you could save one file on Arweave with R Drive forever, what would it be? And what would this file say about you and your history or your family or something like that? Absolutely. So actually, I did that for uh, my late uh, grandparents. So if there's just one piece of information I could save. I would, I had one about a five second video clip of my late grandma calling my nickname in Shahanese. And I've actually uploaded on, onto the perma web. I would like that to be uh, like, yeah, like it's a permanent, like a memorial of someone who inspired me and impacted me so deeply uh, growing up. And I would also want that to be a part, like a, almost like we, we don't have a, a family history, like a history book, where uh, like it's not, it's not like a, we're like a big legacy family. One of those that has 50 generations up. I have no idea who my great grandparents are, um, but I would want that to be almost like the Genesis block for my family history uh, to see how 
her as a, uh, a blue collar worker in Shanghai who like is barely literate, uh, were able to impact the next generation, like her kids and her grandkids like me to have the right values of humility and all that and be able to like pass it down to my offsprings, the super hyper digital native folks that will look at this and understand where they come from. Yeah, That's a special way to, to remember and pay tribute and never forget and for future generations. Absolutely. I, I think both for like kind of historical memories and for family memories, these are, I think, use cases that even my mom would appreciate. Like we want, like fundamentally, going back to the earlier topic to, I guess, to wrap us up, technology itself can be, it's, it's, these are just codes, right? It's very abstract, it's digital. It doesn't have warmth. And uh, as we are seeing this kind of emergence of social or decentralized society, it's really adding that human layer, uh, recognizing that we're social animals at the end of the day, that we are uh, people that uh, connect emotional connections and social connections at the end of the day, and adding that warmth to the tech layer. And I think that's where like truly the, the technology becomes vivid and it becomes a kind of a, almost a sentimental and of uh, emotional importance to users beyond like rational transactional value add. Yeah. And that's like what we're hoping to create that kind of genuine and humane uh, user experience, even in Web3 through, through Web3 social innovation. I really like that. You're bringing a lot of a big heart to it. And as a head of global growth with Mask, you're really able to communicate these things in a sensitive, intelligent way, which I know our listeners will be excited to learn more. Where should we send people? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I think today, if you are new to Web3, you're like, check this thing out, like definitely follow mask.io on our Twitter and try out mask browser extension if you're, if you're on your laptop and then try out Firefly app, which is a separate Twitter, uh, try out the app on your mobile to see what like this like future of social uh, aggregation looks like across Web2 and Web3. And if you're a developer today uh, looking to build something that's next generation, uh, that's uh, revolutionary in terms of yeah, building a next gen social app or, uh, or, or DAO tooling and all that, please do check on Next ID on our official Twitter and you'll be able to access our developer handbook where we detailly outlay the different modules that we offer, the SDKs that we offer to developers today and things that you can build around. At, we are going to be at ECC and then there will be like hackathons to build social use cases around our universal identity graph very soon. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Thank you, Hannah. You're great guest. Thank you so much, Andrew. And thank you so much for, for this opportunity to share our thoughts and my story. Yeah. Thanks, Hannah. Great interview. Next week, I talked to Devin from the Web3 Working Group. I met him in Austin at Consensus as well. And uh, it's an awesome interview talking about the future of the internet. Let's go. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.